Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Today, Rebecca Muller is on. And Rebecca, I want to talk about two different things. Tell me if this is okay. I want to talk about exceptional circumstances for exceptional students, and I want to talk about teacher wellness. Can we cover both, do you think? Absolutely. So, so I would always have said special ed, but you've chosen to use different terms and phrases there. Do you want to talk about why that is? Um, so yes. So what's interesting is as, um, I've kind of been able to do things across the global scale, it's interesting to recognize how names of things matter. So, uh, special education is the, um, I guess most com commonly used nomenclature when we're talking about children who have special needs, be it a math difficulty um, to something like having uh, um, an autism spectrum disability. Um, but as we're getting into a more person positive uh, realm, which I think is wonderful, um, you know, to be special, there's a lot of things that go into that. Um when by using the word exceptionalities, there's nothing special about the way I teach in that it's just good education. What makes my students exceptional is that the fact that there's some extra things that we need to do in order to get whatever the curriculum or the skill to for them to be able to transfer that and to really um, get to where they need to be academically, socially. Um, so exceptionalities, I feel, gives a larger scope. Um, it is a more positive approach. I think special, a lot of times kids think of that as, you know, the special bus, it's the short bus. Um, and really, it's not that it's, something completely different it's just something that needs to be done a little bit in a um, you may need a little bit extra so um, what's interesting though is that exceptionalities is not universally known within the connection to special education so I will tip my hat to uh, the council for exceptional child children um, that is really where I got inspired to go and learn more about the field. Um, I was able to start the student chapter at my college and um, I, to this day, continue to be in, in, involved. And that is international and they have used the word exceptional. So I tip my hat to them um, as to why I continue to use it. Let's explore that a little. So one of the, th the things that I've always appreciated about uh, what we've called special education was that I felt like it in many ways was a better model for individual attention than some normal educational circumstances. I couldn't so, agree more. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we tell this story that schools exist for the benefit of each individual, that each individual is exceptional and unique. But largely schools require a kind of conformity and learning the, the, the rules of the game to play the game of school. 
and don't right. really give a lot of that individual attention to most students. Is that fair? I think that is incredibly fair. Um, and, you know, special education came about um, because it has legalities attached. Um, instead of taking a difficult student or someone that the teacher did not feel she could adequately service, now with the laws that were enacted in the late 60s, early 70s, it became law, um, at least within the United States. Um, and so much of that is tied to the human rights move movements. Um, but at the end of the day, when you're looking at what we do, that is tied to the legalities, it's literally looking at the individual and giving them exactly what they need. And you would hope that that is what is happening in education writ, writ large. Um, but what does it take? It takes a lot more specialization. It takes a lot more time. Um, so instead of doing that, I do believe that we've kind of had a blanketed, let's just make everybody what I like to say, commonly unique. You're allowed to be special, but you got to be like everyone else. The other phrase that I like to use is, um, we are involved in individualized, um, individualized um, assessment, right? So it's the fact that we are individualized, but we are standardized. So standardized individuality, which really is the biggest con contradiction. It is interesting how you, you're going to see a different piece of the elephant here because of your background. A book I read that I really enjoyed was called The Elephant in the Brain. Okay. And the authors described how in almost all large-scale institutions, the institutions develop a narrative about what they do that isn't actually what they do. But it's the accepted narrative because it keeps things moving. Okay. There's money, there's attention, there's the ability to pay bills and salaries and the like. And so their point was that uh, you know, the banking industry, you know, says it's about helping you become financially independent and a saver, but it really exists off profits. Mm. And so uh, the healthcare industry uh, to help you be healthy, but in fact, you know, largely generates its profits from you, you taking things that don't actually solve your problems, but, but continue to provide revenue. And, and none of this is to in any way to attribute malintent. But it does feel as though what Passy Salberg calls the global education reform movement, this movement around the world of modern public schooling, largely helps people kind of get inculcated into our financial culture. Mm. You do things for other people, you conform, you get the homework done, you know, you do you you be, you become a worker. And that the kids who say that they're uh, the kids who feel like they're doing the best at school would say they've learned to play the game really well. So your students, the exceptional students, how would they describe the education experience? 
That is a fabulous question and one that we don't ask them enough. Um, We expect them to sometimes be good little soldiers and just kind of do what they need to do to get by. Um, So I've had the unique experience of now I've taught fourth grade, seventh grade, and now I'm at the high school. And um, I get to talk to and form relationships with these students that really feel like they've been left behind um, despite all best intentions because, you know, especially within the mathematics realm, they start to get tracked and they don't have um, the same opportunities as their, their peers. Um, they feel labeled and feel like they have just kind of been um, missed in a lot of their inclusion classrooms. Um, what they enjoy in the smaller groups is that the fact that I do get to build re- relationships with them and um, get to know them as individuals. Um, and I think that is anytime you try to do in something on a large scale, you miss the chances to learn about each individual student. Um And I know one thing that I really want to do in the upcoming year is to talk directly to the students that are experiencing it. The fact that our students have not been involved in their own um, IEP meetings, which is the individual education plan, which is required as a part of the IDEA, which is the law that backs special education. Um, sometimes the kids have no idea what is in their plan simply because no one talks to them about the thing that is clearly completely about them. Um, and so we have gotten so drenched in theory and standards and verbiage that we sometimes forget the whole point or at least the uh, ideal point is, is that it's about the students. Um, but when you do kind of follow the money bag, you realize that, you know, and COVID really kind of uncovered the fact that sometimes school is just so that the adults can go to work. Um, and that is a real issue. Um, I think that's why we're seeing people um, looking to more alternatives within their education experiences um, and truly trying to figure out what is this all for? We're still educating kids for a industry model to prepare them for jobs that by the time they get there will not exist. Um, So we really have to change the way we're doing things. Um, I'm noticing a lot more vocational type classes that were pushed out trying to come back. Um, I hope that that's a trend that continues. Um, But it's interesting because a lot of those vocational classes were kind of slated for the kids that weren't cut out for the academics, which a lot of times you're getting 
kids that did have IEPs and who struggled. So those vocational classes were not seen as opportunities, but this is your next best op- option. Um, and anybody who has who has needed something done to their car recognize the absolute importance of having um, those skills be a paramount and not a um, something that is looked down upon. Oh, we're about to go deep here. (laughs) Okay, so I love what just happened in my own brain in this moment. (laughs) You and I have talked before about Plato's noble lie. Absolutely. In the the Republic, Plato describes that we tell a lie in order to accomplish a social goal. And the lie is that people are bronze or gold, silver, bronze or brass. Uh And it's in order to get people to swim in their lanes and to feel comfortable that they have different roles in society. How time timely right oh, now yeah. with the Olympics. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, super interesting. Okay, so as you were talking, I was thinking, it's not just students that are in this world, but but students and teachers live in somewhat parallel worlds, right? Both require conformance and compliance to the machinery. You said that we're not preparing students for the work world, maybe not in terms of skills, but we're certainly preparing them to do what they're told to do. Mm. Okay. Right. And mm-hmm. the same with teachers. Right. We, we keep teachers on a fairly tight leash in, in a lot of cases. And we don't there's not a lot of agency either for the student or the teacher. So one of the things that I feel like I discovered over the last 10 years was the number of people who leave school feeling wounded. Mm. That they feel like what they learned at school was that they were not a good learner. Right. And they carry some. I I. I use this phrase, and I know it's a strong one, but that they carry some sense of self-loathing that comes from their school experience. They don't like who they are or who they believe they were told they were or, or believed they were based on their school experience. So then we've got to teacher wellness. And is there a connection? Do teachers feel the same way? Did they not feel the value of their own individual importance and uniqueness? Well, as a math teacher, what you're saying is resonating with me because especially as I got to the upper grades, I became less of a person who taught skills and more a person who um, became a therapist to help them manage math anxiety and these blockages that were created in third and fourth grades when their name was not on the star math facts board. Um, So there is a lot of shame that is put upon them when they are seen as a lot of times just average. You need to be above and beyond and you know, we forget to look at, well, why are we learning this in the first place? Um, The other thing um, is that comes to mind is um, an author that I've had the privilege to talk with a few times. Um, I see Robledo. Um, He wrote a book called No One Ever Taught Me How to Learn. We teach them facts. We teach them what they need to know for the current moment. But there's a lot of 
um, the standardized tests and the and the man mandates kind of take away what you said the agency to want to learn to be cure cure curious about anything and to know how to go about to learn those those things and not unless you yourself are a curious person or continue in the academic world because um of a drive do you really figure out how your own brain works um there's been and it's funny because there's been a lot of movements to say okay we're gonna bring in neurology here we're gonna talk about this and then it just doesn't ever pick up and i want to know why i want to know it seems like we know what works and what doesn't but we don't get there and so to bring it back to what you're saying with When I get inspired to do something different, when I want to take it to that next level, depending on what subject it is, depending on who my supervisor is at the current time, depending on what the new hot topic is. So right now I know it's going to be social, emotional, learn learning we know that that's the thing that has to be done but we don't always do things um authentically so that's where everybody has to do it the same way because they have to track it they're gonna buy a program so that when they do the report it's look look we did it it's not working but we did it so there's this disconnect, right? Because then the teachers can't do things that actually speak to them and they feel lost. And then they do just become a sol- soldier who just kind of marches along. Speaking of the game of education, I've had this idea for a long time. And every time I go to sit down to write it, I, I, I view school as a game of chess, Right. It's meant to be thoughtful. Um, All the pieces have a reason. And I think too often we make our students the pawns. And really our students need to be the king. The students need to be the one that we're protecting. And they need to be the one that is moving slowly but has the power. And every time I sit down, I'm like, but wait, maybe it's not the students that are the king. Maybe that is the leadership. And then I think about that and then I change it. And I can't quite figure out which entities and stakeholders all play into this game of chess with the analogy of school. Um, But I will say the hardest one that I can never place is who are the teachers? Where yeah, can do I, they can I, can I reframe that whole thing? Yeah. I, this is so fun. Um, two things have come out in the conversation for me so far. One of which is scope and scale, mm-hmm. right? So the special education class is really small, yeah. right? It's individualized. It's intentional. It's not, it's, it's, it's not standardized, mm-hmm. right? So it's an individual or, or multiple instructors who are dealing with the existing circumstances of students. 
mm-hmm. and figuring out it at the time. The, so scope and scale is one. The second for me is agency. The idea that students wouldn't be involved in their own IEP yeah. shocked me. And then it was like, no, but of course not. Because students really aren't largely in charge of their own education experience. Right. We, we give them choices, but we pretend that those choices are agency. And there's a difference between having voice or choices and actually having self-direction. Right. So in this game of chess, the first thing that I thought of was that the student is the player Mm. of the game and that the teacher is the coach. So the student's learning to play the game of life, the chessboard. Okay, right. And I know, I mean, I know I've reframed it beyond what you were actually going for. But then the teacher is the coach saying, oh, well, if you move the rook there, this is what could happen. And to try memorizing this set of sequences to see how that, you know, how that goes if you play those sequences out at the start of the game. So for me, it's like that second piece, the agency and the self-direction, we give so much lip service to, but I don't think it's really a part of most students' experiences, even the students who say that they're the most successful, because they're still playing someone else's game. Yeah, and I mean, how many of us, how many, like that's true for so many Um, And, you know, this whole idea of being able to center yourself and, you know, we talked a lot about um, the icky guy and finding a center and the purpose. A lot of that comes with privilege to be able to do that because we're not that far off, which is from where summertime you had off because you had to work on the farms, which were still set in those ways, which is something of another top topic. But, you know, like we live in a society that could provide so much. Um, this idea of scarcity, um, you know, it's out there, but... The, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm getting a little bit too uh, broad here, but at the same time, like we have the chances to be able to have people to do things that really inspire them, but we don't know what to do with that yet um, because it hasn't been done yet because our society wasn't set up where, you know, as of, 18 months ago, we were all still driving to work. Um, Now we're all in our homes and we've made these little home offices, which open up a whole new world on how we can do things. Um, And if we don't start to change those structures that have been in place since 1950 and beyond, it's time to really think about that. Um, And I was hoping that we wouldn't be marching back into uh, a school that looks the same. But when I tell you that I have yet to hear what our plans are um, for September 1st, I mean, we don't even know what it's going to look like yet. Um, But there's not a lot of um, innovation or things that besides throwing money at us, the actual ideas seem to be a little lacking. Um, And 
it's not the ideas of individuals, but at the end of the day, the people that make the decisions um, are still looking for, I think, the easiest path. And any special education teacher will tell you to individualize <laughs> a classroom of nine kids who are all on different skill sets um, and to still try to maintain status quo and be able to fill out the bureaucratic paperwork. It's not fun. It's not easy. And it takes many hours beyond the regular workday, which you are, of course, not compensated for. And there's a whole line of things that can be said about that as well. I want to go to this moment, this change moment. But quickly before we do so, I'm, you said something about students of privilege. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've often done at, at conferences and the like is I'll say to an audience or to individuals I'm talking to, what's the number one influence on a student's academic success? And the answer is 99 times out of 100, the answer is the family. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about how that might be kind of an easy way of saying, well, those, there are problems that come from the family that we can't really fully solve. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's a way of saying there's something really important about a caring adult or adults in a mm -hmm. child's life because they can help put the failed test into context. They can help get the homework done. They can, you know, see the bigger picture and, and sort of help, help learn what the rules of the game are, you know, mm -hmm. how to play that game. So I feel like we, that, that's, that there's sort of, of an invisibility to that role of family that gets placed in the category of privilege, mm -hmm. but doesn't necessarily require financial privilege. Mm -hmm. It just requires caring adults let's call it situational privilege because yeah, you like could that. have the most caring adult, but they are caring for you and the fact that they are working the two, three jobs and they might not have the time, um, which, you know, I think that's the thing that we all um, have seen that even with being home, it doesn't mean we have more time for the children because now we're home and now we're expected to work throughout the entire day, not just from eight to five or whatever a normal work day is these, these, these days. So I would like to uh, call that the situational privilege. So you can talk about, you know, what that means, but it, it, it is about having somebody there that, basically is going to listen to you and be there for your wants and needs. And whether that is getting an assignment done or being talked to and cared for that your feelings matter. The fact that going to school is hard and saying, Hey, I recognize that. Um, I think the biggest thing, and I, and I can say the same for the teachers. We just want to be listened to. Um, we want to have a community that says, hey, I get this, but we're here together. And a lot of times, um, depending on where you are, it doesn't always happen. And that's just yeah, so a human need. You know, it's a human need. 
So if you're teaching a group of students in a special ed class, you probably recognize where a student needs a challenge, mm -hmm. where, where they need to be challenged to work harder. Mm -hmm. There are other times when they need to be able to say, they just need someone to listen and to understand what's going on. There's something so human and personal about that. Mm -hmm. This idea that another care, a caring adult can see the variety of ways that you can help to influence someone in their path to becoming more self-directed. Sure. Right? Yeah. So cool. uh, uh, let's talk about change. Yeah. So Ivan, Ivan Illich wrote a book called Deschooling Society. And he felt like, you know, all of the institutions in our society sort of mirror this school circumstance you've just described. You and I have just described mm -hmm. compliance, conformance, not a lot of individual attention, learning the rules, et cetera, et cetera. So every once in a while, there's something that happens in the world that causes us to, to reflect and, and potentially make change. Sometimes it's a crisis. Right. Something, something happens and you just don't have a choice and you have to reinvent. Sometimes, although it's quite hard, there can be a conscious intent to change. So, uh, you know, maybe eating healthy is an example of that. Uh -huh. So the, the food movement, people looking at uh, organic and non-GMO and reevaluating the studies on sugar and fat. Mm -hmm. So not a crisis necessarily, but a group of people who really care and are thinking deeply and they produce documentaries and all kinds of stuff. So let's say that the pandemic sits in the crisis category. Okay. Right. Something that's, that we might require that we reinvent, but it does require that there be some intentionality for understanding how to reinvent and what we want. Right. And let's say that what's happening in Australia Mm -hmm. with the lockdowns and the, um, the Delta variant and the large numbers of vaccinated who are getting sick. Sure. And the question about needing boosters. So let's say that that is a, per is a the perfect storm, the bad perfect storm. And we go into the fall and there's a crisis again. Sure. How do we consciously help the reinvention process when people's when people are, I mean, I think most administrators, teachers, parents are just in survival mode in that kind of a moment. How would we help them rethink education in a moment of crisis? So I feel like in last two marches ago at this point, it was a crisis because we've never experienced it. But now we have gone through an entire academic year and we're continuing to try to fit this square into a whole um a circle we're we're we're, we're still like it's gonna fit we're gonna make it work um and so at this point the fact that we don't have some contingent plan that we haven't said okay here is our staff. Here is who we have. Here's how we can break things down. Um, I will say just in my own personal experience, um, we had a lot of ideas. And then it was, well, let's just, let's just wait. Let's just wait to see. 
And when you wait and see in a child's life, that's an entire year that they don't get back, right? So I feel like at this point, we have to be beyond the let's wait and see what happens. Let's have a plan A, a plan B, and plan C. And even if that's just within the community, because every community has a different need. Um, the one thing I think that they've done a great job with, at least in 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 my state, is providing food. Um, you know, the money went to a great place that any fam family can go and pick up food. Um, so I think we go back to the Maslow hierarchy of of needs. So we're going to make sure that everybody has a place to, to, to be, that they have food. Um, and then I think we need to start thinking about why do we make kids go all the way up to algebra two? You know, what do they really need to learn to be functional readers? Um, and kind of breaking the skills down, um, so that perhaps, you know, we've done 12 years of education and that's been what has worked up to go to 12th grade and a diploma. But as we all know, the diploma doesn't mean much anymore. You can't really get, you got to go to college. You got to go to the next thing. And I don't know if that's a necessity or that goes back to what you were saying, um, the elephant of, of, of the brain. These are the stories that we're telling ourselves because that's where the profit is. Um, I can say that colleges are um, definitely seeing the effects of not as many students are enrolling. Um, I don't think the numbers have been published yet um, exclusively, but you can't hide for too, too long. Um, and so once it starts to hit the right person's pocketbook, um, we're going to have to change. Um, and I'm just very, I guess, personally sick of reactionary change when we have enough information and enough data to be proactive. It's kind of like that intersection where there's constantly an, an accident. I don't know the exact number, but I do know that there has to be a certain amount of accidents for them to even consider it to put the light in. Instead of just recognizing that there is a danger and let's do it before there's any you know harm done. Um, so I think that's just a, a narrative that we have to change. I don't know how you go about in doing that. Is it just tied to policy and bureaucracy? I don't know. But personally, it's frustrating. Um, I will say this past uh, last week was the um, special education legislative summit. So I've spent the last week um, talking to my representatives at the federal and the state level um, to talk about the needs of special ed because all this money is here or potentially could be. And we need to make sure that it's filtered to the right things. Um, and a lot of times teachers or the people that um, are get to use the money don't make the decisions about it. 
Um, so when it comes to change, I know we've had this conversation for the last year, you know, where do you go? It, you know, is it the parents? Is it the students? Is it, does it have to be at a state level? Does something even more catastrophic have to happen to make a change? Um, I would hope that that's not true, but if we look at history, that's all that I've seen that actually um, matters, unfortunately. Schooling is a deep, deeply ingrained cultural concept, mm-hmm. right? And I, you've heard me say before, and I know it's a little controversial, but I think modern public schooling is a form of governance mm-hmm. more than it's a form of enabling individual capacity. So uh, my Last interview was with Brian, the futurist Brian Alexander. Futurist Brian Alexander. And he's really a neat guy. And he talks mostly about higher ed. And we mm-hmm. talked about changing the, the narrative around decision making. Mm. Meaning mm-hmm. if you're a junior or senior in high school, by all historical standards, you're of an age to be an adult. Right. Uh, you know, most cultures at age 12 or 13, you were initiated into the adult world. We, mm-hmm. we don't do that, but you're capable at that age. And there are so many unknowns about the future and about college. And there are enough historical precedents that it doesn't make sense to follow necessarily the standard story, like student loans. Right. You know, the $2 trillion of student uh-huh. loans across a whole generation of students who are you know, who, who were sort of tricked into something that we probably should be regretting. Mm-hmm. So can, can we create a, a way of thinking about decision-making that would put more agency into juniors and seniors and with their parents in making decisions rather than following the traditional path? And again, I come back to food, right? So we haven't had a food crisis in the same way that we might be facing a crisis with the pandemic in education, but right. there have been large scale changes around how, how people view food and mm-hmm. they've been, um, they've been sort of one-to-one uh, like a popular movement. Right. And so you know, I come down on thinking, okay, we, this is what we need. We need these conversations. We need to be able to be, talking and sort of one-to-one saying, hey, just like it's important to make your own individual decisions about food, it's important to make your own individual decisions about learning. Right. Yeah. And that I can say it doesn't, I mean, so I get torn because I truly believe in public education. I believe that it should be the heart of a community that, you know, there's just, there's just so much good that can come from it. And so when you hear choice, I think as of right now, everybody thinks of, oh, you're talking about charters. Um, oh, you're talking about school choice. Oh, you know, and um, those have good intentionalities, but all of that comes down to how things get funded. Um, so the families that have been able to homeschool, 
effectively, typically are able to homeschool effectively because they have the um, situational privilege to do so. Um, They have the space in the house. They have, you know, the ability to pay a teacher. Um, And while I know that there's a lot of really good things and going on with um, micro schools and to help to have scholarship, at some point there needs to be someone who is funding it. Um, And so, you know, right now they're seen as separate things. You know, you can either homeschool or go to the public school. Um, I will say that within special education, if a family decides to homeschool and a child has um, a special need, there still needs to be communication with the family and the school. Um, But that's true because it's backed by by the law um, within IDEA. So perhaps we need to look at a more global system that you know looks at individuals um whether or not because i think we all have some sort of exceptionality right um i don't promote it but people like oh my god my adhd today or you know oh i'm so this we don't actually have it we shouldn't joke about it but i think we all to some everything's a spectrum and so you know (laughs) What does that look like? You know, how do we ensure that there's communication um, with the homeschool fam- families or the pods um, to continue to have that connection with the school, not as a way to track them, but to also provide the resources. If you've ever tried to homeschool, looking at what curriculums you are going to purchase, it's a it's a, a, a commitment. Um, and I just, I wonder what that would look like. Um, and I like that you've kind of brought this up because as always, Steve, you have my wheels spinning. (laughs) I don't know where I'm going, but my wheels are going somewhere. (laughs) It is really tricky. And it's fascinating to me that we feel comfortable that, somebody doesn't mandate our food choices. We feel at some level discomfort, but not enough to enforce that there is inequity in food. And we also, we also have a recognition that you can eat better typically if you have more money, Mm -hmm. right? That, That eating better often requires spending more and it requires more time because you have to prepare foods. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of parallels here, but intriguingly, we don't send children to feeding stations three times a day. We (laughs) accept that food is an an elemental part of human growth, but we don't control it. And we allow the marketplace to to provide, and then we, we backfill. If I could push back on that a little bit, and what we saw during the pandemic is that schools are sometimes the place where kids get meals, at least the breakfast and the lunch. And when you look at what they're getting some of the times, 
you wonder, right? Because a lot like the breakfast is like pre-packaged French toast that's mostly sugar. Um, so once again, you know, while that is a state-funded program to offer breakfast based on um, your family's in, in income, you have to look at what they're actually giving them. Um, oh, that's so profound. So that is, you know, so you say that we're not mandating the food choice. The idea of like the trough, I think is kind of funny, but for some kids, it's a reality. Um, you know, they've tried to improve the choices, but talk to any kid about what's the one thing you want to change about school. And they'll probably say the cafeteria food, right? That's like the on go, go, going joke. Um, I will say that even with the state pro program that allows any fam family to come to pick up food, a lot of the families don't, not because they, um, you know, don't appreciate it or they don't have the time or they don't care. The kids aren't going to eat it. So now we're talking about food waste and that's a whole other thing too. So <laughs> it's so complicated. Um, but I do like the idea of there's a much bigger awareness of our food choices. I don't know if there's a big awareness of our school choices. And the only people that sometimes have to pay attention are the families that have a student with a special need. And they recognize very clearly that the school is not meeting the needs of their child. Um, so I think we have a lot to learn from um, our students who don't hide their emotions as well, um, who can show us um, what things are going well and what is not and going well. If we just stop and observe them and listen, um, I just don't know how you make that happen across a system. Um, where do you start besides just having small conversations and hoping that it um, people can change things within their individual communities? Yeah, I go back frequently to Schumacher's small is beautiful concept mm -hmm. that we're built for small scale community. And so the, when we seek to scale up all these programs and they become institutionalized, they, they don't really fit with, how we work and that we work better in small scale. I want to shift gears. Can we shift yes. gears for a second? Of so, course. One of the things that I found so interesting in talking about the wounds of school was that I would ask adults about their school experiences and some of them would start to cry. And oh. I hadn't realized how profoundly they had internalized this sense of failure from their school experience. Uh-huh. Now we're hearing a lot about social and emotional learning programs. And what I'm hearing from teachers is you're asking me to help students with social and emotional learning, and I'm not getting my needs met. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm struggling. 
I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to add all of these things to the student curriculum. And I had a discussion with a funder last week and I said, is anybody funding programs to help with teacher wellness? Uh-huh. And her response was that she hadn't heard of any. Huh. I don't know if that's representative. It may, it may be that there is money coming for that and that kind of thing. But would you talk briefly about your experience looking to build community, going to the Peter Block absolutely. A day-long program, and then kind of your own reflections on teacher wellness? Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's complex because I think I'm searching for it because I found that I personally needed it, especially within the last year. Um, so my perusings in clubhouse and Twitter spaces and different places to try to look for my people as I felt isolated within my own profession, as I was asking these questions that we explored today and I just kind of got the shoulder shrugged, um, I made my way to, um, a online event, um, that was run through an organization that works directly with Peter Block. And Peter Block is an organizational psychologist who's been around for a long time. And um, that experience, what it was, it wasn't just for educators, but what it did was just kind of ask the question, why do you need to be here today? Like, what brought you here? And through a series of just simple questions and talking in small groups, um, I was able to unlock a lot of the reasoning as to why I was needing this community. And, you know, the fact that I really do want to make change and I feel kind of alone within the process and, um, it helped me to recognize that a lot of what I do is because I do want a brighter and future for my own son. I think there's a lot of worry that things will just stay the same. And um, so, uh, you know, throughout the um, past year, through learning revolution, um, I had an online discussion show for special educators called Exceptional Circumstances for Exceptional Learners, or E-C-E-E-L. And um, what was great about that is that, you know, like, like I said before, people just, people want to be heard. Um, people want to know that people care. And that what they do matters because when you're talking to a screen all day, most of the time with black Zoom boxes that just have names and you're doing all this work and you're not seeing a lot come back, sometimes you're, I know I felt like, what is the purpose of all this? Um, and I just kind of continued and I marched along and I did what I needed to do in my job, but I know I realized I wanted to change things. Um, and it's great to talk to people from around the country and around the world who are having sim- similar thoughts, um, because it makes you feel not alone and it brings a community together and, um, it helps you to recognize why you became a teacher in the first place. Um, I got caught in the idea that I knew I couldn't quit my job, even though I was afraid of 
the exposure to COVID and what have you, but the reality was I needed the healthcare. Um, And I think when we find like-minded people that help us to explore our passions and our desires, it helps us to then be present for the students that are in front of us. I think in teaching, it's easy to just do the same thing every year. Your lessons are done. Your worksheets are are made. Um, and the only thing I think a lot of us did, I don't want to speak to everybody, but we just turned those worksheets into a digital form format. So nothing was really changing. We were just doing it in a different way. Um but it wasn't true change. Um, and so sometimes teachers work for the summers. Um, and that space and that enthusiasm for innovation and change, if you don't seek it, it's easy just to get by. Um, so I encourage people to continue to be a part of spaces and um, get involved in communities that can help you find that purpose to continue to go back to your core. Because if you don't love what you do, if you're not, if you're there and in administration or in a job because you're there for the money, education's not the place to be there for the money. Um, you know, especially now, you know, it used to be, oh, well, you're going to get a pension. Well, now there's a chance that some of those things won't be be there. Um, and when you're not authentic to your cause, the kids see right through that. And let's get back to the kids, right? That's who we're trying to inspire. And there's nothing worse. I think we've all had at least one, if not many, teachers that, we're just there to go through the motions. Maybe you had one that, that says, wow, they really cared about me or they really cared about what they taught. Um, but I don't think that that's the norm. And we're starting to lose more and more educators because it's not a funded um, career, right? We're not making what you could make if you went to a tech com- company. Um, and people are looking for different ways. Um, so we are strapped by the systems um, when it comes to how to make a career. Um, so there's a lot of things to be said about that socially, what we could do to change things to have individuals want to pursue teaching. Um, but I think that lends itself to another chat. <laughs> I want to say something that I think might be slightly controversial, but I'll say it and you can tell me how you might say it in a different or better way. Sure. I think a lot of times I've watched adults whose lives aren't in control, mm-hmm. try and teach or control youth but I know it's an impossibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you and I have talked about this as the Caesar Milan, it's not your dog theory. Right. Right. So someone says, my dog's not obeying. 
and what Caesar Milan knows is it's the it's the dog owner who hasn't figured out how to actually right. create the right circumstance. So I watch a lot of adults who have often really good intentions, who want to help students, but who haven't really put their own lives in order or haven't achieved a level of wisdom that would allow them to see how to actually help students. And I don't know how that could happen if there wasn't opportunity for teacher development and wellness and right. time. Or, you know, like I would be in school forever if it didn't come with the <laughs> large price tag, um, especially teachers. Now they do have the fact that you need to get more professional development credits, but a lot of time that is on your own. So the programs that perhaps you would love to be a part of, you don't choose to enroll in those because you're going to try to do the ones that are um, low cost or free or funded by the district. Mm. Um, so there are in, like, there's some things that are there as far as check boxes to have and teachers continue to develop, but it's a lot of times it's not internal work. Right. It's not things that are going to push them to be, you know, the next best version of themselves. It's whatever the latest craze is, uh, you know, it's whatever um, Cor Corwin put out as this is the new thing. Uh, but the fact that it's the 21st set century and we've been talking about 21st century learning since 1990 and we're still doing things pretty much the same way that I think lends itself to kind of show that change takes a long time and we're not going about it in the right ways or that it's a trap or that it's a trap <laughs> that it's an elephant in the brain the elephant that, in the brain. I love that that we we can't see the, the glaring reality because we tell a different story. And the one I didn't mention from the book that I found so intriguing was healthcare. And they said that healthcare actually is driven on conspicuous care rather than on health. Mm -hmm. that, we, that we are taking care of people, that we're, but we're not really concerned about health. That there's a virtuous, there's virtue signaling and caring for others. Right. It's different than actually helping people be healthy. And that goes back to diet and other sort of deeply interesting things. And like the holistic, which has been around for centuries, is now seen as something that is new wave or different. And really it's based more in um, just a not a profit model. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, and so I think what's hard, too, is that when we look back into how education was done, we have to remember that education was done within small groups for the elite, the elite white male. Um, and when you're talking about a formal structure and then slowly but surely we've brought more and more in, um, but the more differences that have come about 
we still are going back to the way that it was before and we need to change our structures and our ways and um that could be you know the one thing that we could start with is maybe timing um you know why do we go to school from seven to four um why is it from the months of september to um june and i know a lot of places have played around with that but at the end of the day it comes down to certain inequities um and there's just a lot to fight for. And I think the individualized uh, approach per kid is great, but sometimes we don't think collectively about the community. Um, and that comes from that whole um, individualist, that rustic kind of approach that we're going to do what's best for us. And unfortunately, that sometimes leaves others in our community be behind. Um, so yeah, there's a lot here, Steve. <laughs> Thank you for an interesting conversation, Rebecca. Yeah, I definitely went into places I wasn't expecting, but that I think is um, what is wonderful about the future of education um, to start these conversations with individuals from all kinds of and different backgrounds um, and hopefully the collective thought of all of us will get us somewhere. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you too. <laughs> You're very welcome. Okay. Please join us at futureofeducation.com. We've got this series going again. Pretty soon it should be daily. Lots of fun there. Hope you'll join us. Take care now and bye. Bye, Rebecca. Bye, Steve. Thank you. Thank you.